Well, if you can still find it in your Bible, I encourage you to turn to the book of Hebrews. Um, If you don't know why that's funny, it's because you've joined us maybe in the last few months, but we are in a journey through the book of Hebrews and we've taken a pause, but we are back there today. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we find ourselves, verses one to four. As I was preparing for this week, I was contemplating the fact that to understand the true value of any product, you first have to understand the problem that that product is made to solve. We buy products because those products offer solutions to problems and those solutions are more valuable to us than the money it costs to buy them. Now, the greater the problem the product solves, the more money we're willing to pay for it. For example, consider a a car versus a package of bubble gum. Both solve a problem. One ensures that you have good smelling breath and your family and friends want to be near you. The other ensures that you can travel to and from different places. Now, you can go to work with bad breath, but you probably can't get there without transportation. And so, you're likely more willing to pay more money for a car than you are for a package of bubble gum. But now, compare that car to a heart transplant. And let's say that you are in desperate need of a heart transplant. That heart transplant is going to solve a problem of, of greater value than the car. And so, you may be willing in that scenario, if needed, to sell the car and put that money towards the heart transplant. Now, the fundamental truth that a product's value is determined by the importance of the problem that it solves is actually fundamental to our understanding of the value of the gospel. It helps us understand also one of the reasons why the gospel is so undervalued in our culture today. When you try to explain the value of anything without first explaining the problem that it solves, the true value of that thing will never be fully appreciated. For example, back to the heart transplant, if a cardiologist told you that uh, you should get a heart transplant because it's a, it's a really cool product, it's on the cutting edge of medical technology and it's gonna improve your life and happiness, but it's also gonna cost you maybe around a million dollars and it's gonna require an extensive painful surgery and you're gonna be on expensive medications for the rest of your life, uh, you'll probably say, I think I'll pass. But if the same cardiologist told you instead that you're only going to live three more months without a heart transplant and then told you what it cost, you would say, sign me up. Why? What changed between those two presentations of the heart transplant? Well, the first presentation really dealt with the certain fringe benefits that a heart transplant might provide for you. The other presented the true nature of your problem and the solution that only a heart transplant could provide. And for decades now, it's become popular in mainstream Christianity to present the value of the gospel of Jesus Christ as as if its supreme value is to bring comfort to your temporal life. Come to Jesus and have a happy marriage, they say. Come to Jesus and discover the wonderful plan he has for your life. Come to Jesus and release the chains of debt and sickness and depression. The only problem is, none of those things are the primary problem that the Bible says Jesus came to solve. 
In fact, the Bible is candid about the fact that becoming a Christian may make your temporal life much, much more uncomfortable. The Bible's clear from start to finish that Jesus Christ came primarily to solve the problem of your sin. You and I have a diagnosis that's far worse than only having a month to live. The Bible reveals that we have sinned against our creator who is a holy and just God and because of our sin we have earned his judgment which not only includes death in this temporal life but it is death in this life to be followed by eternal death which is separation from God with real conscious torment for our sin in a place called hell. Now, Many have abandoned that message claiming it's just a scare tactic to manipulate people into coming to Jesus. But what it actually is, is the honest truth of the problem that the gospel has come to solve. The true value of the gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ came to save you and I from the wrath of God for our sin. That's the value of the gospel. And I'm beginning our message this way this morning because if we don't understand the supreme value of the gospel and the solution that Jesus Christ provides to our problem with sin, then we won't find this message this morning very interesting. Because as we open Hebrews chapter 10, the author's aim is to prove to us once again that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. And the reason it's superior, ultimately, is because it actually solves the problem of sin once and for all. Now, if we understand just how dire our situation is in our sin, then and only then will we give glory to God and rejoice when we understand the solution of the sacrifice of Christ. Now, I realize it's been three months since we were last in Hebrews, and so a recap is in order for us to get back up to speed. I'll give a little bit longer of a recap this morning than I will in, in coming weeks, just to make sure we remember where we've been, because we've all slept many times since then. Hopefully, you still remember the theme, at least, the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ, and the situation that we're dealing with is what we've called spiritual apathy. Remember, the, the content of Hebrews suggests that these Christians who were probably primarily Jewish are going through a time of spiritual crisis. We can't be sure ex- exactly why that is. Certainly, probably included outward persecution and pressures, maybe even pressures from within the local church. But whatever the pressures are that they're experiencing, it started to cause them to be somewhat nostalgic about their previous life in Judaism. They're looking back over the fence at their life before coming to Christ, and they're tempted to think that those were the good old days. The rubber has begun to meet the road in their Christian life, and they're beginning to undervalue the supreme value of Christ. So the author of Hebrews seeks to intervene into that spiritual apathy And if you've been with us, then you know he's done a masterful job of proving time and time again that Jesus Christ is superior to every facet of the old covenant. Let me just remind you of what he's proven to us so far. We've seen that Jesus is superior to the prophets. 
We've seen that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior even to Moses, that great prophet of old. He's superior not only to Moses, but to the entire priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, as we studied in verse, chapter four to chapter seven. But where we left off is in the middle of a long extended argument from chapter eight through the middle of chapter 10, in which the author's proving to us that Jesus is superior to the old covenant and the sacrifices under the old covenant. That's where we left off and it's where we'll pick up again today. And here's the theme that we've been unpacking. Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of his superior covenant and sacrifice for every believer. We're looking at this superior new covenant in Christ and the superior sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're starting chapter 10 today, but chapter 10 continues on the argument at the end of chapter nine. So I'm not gonna go back through all of this, but I do want to remind you of the key themes that we studied in chapter nine. Those of you that were with us will hopefully remember some of the things we said there. There were five segments of chapter nine. We'll put them on the screen for you. We saw the description of the earthly tabernacle and the message of the earthly tabernacle, which in a nutshell is the fact that as long as that tabernacle stood and you had this holy place with a veil separating the most holy place where God's presence was, as long as that was active, the new covenant could not be active. In fact, that old tabernacle was a reminder of the fact that we are unworthy to enter into the presence of God. And so then we saw segment number three, the superiority of Christ's redemption and the fact that he's the mediator of a new covenant because he has purchased once for all in his sacrifice, entrance into the presence of God forever by grace through faith. And then finally, we ended in chapter nine with the superiority of Christ's sacrifice Verses 23 to 28. Now, I do want to read those verses for us because they lay the context for where we'll be in chapter 10 this morning. Let's read Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, He's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And in so much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Now the... The crucial point there in those verses is the fact that Christ's sacrifice was supreme because it was a one-time sacrifice, once and for all. That idea of the once and for all nature of Christ's sacrifice 
is still in the author's mind as we now transition into chapter 10. And he will continue to argue that point for us as we move forward. Now the first half of chapter 10, we'll say verses one to 18, are really a grand summary of the argument that we've been studying this whole time since chapter eight. So a lot of the themes that we'll cover will sound familiar to you, hopefully. But since it's been a minute, this overview actually be very helpful for us and it's gonna prepare us for verse 19 where we begin the application. There's a lot of application coming to these deep theological truths. We'll get into some of that along the way, but we'll save the bulk of it for beginning in verse 19 where the author gives it to us. Let's read our passage this morning, Hebrews 10, verses one to four. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now here in these verses, verses one to 18, in this summary section, there's really two closing arguments, two larger arguments. We'll see the first of those arguments today and enter into the second argument uh, next week, Lord willing. But here's the first closing argument for this extended section. Argument number one is the inadequacy of the old covenant sacrifices. The inadequacy of the old covenant sacrifices. These Jewish Christians, as we've said, had temporarily taken their eyes off of the true value of Jesus Christ and to remind them of the value of Christ, the author wants to turn their attention again and ours as well to the fact that only in Christ is the problem of sin truly adequately dealt with. In order to do that, He's gonna do a compare and contrast as he's done so many times before. He says, if you wanna see the superiority of Christ, you first have to look at the opposite, the old covenant, what happened under the old covenant, and then we'll look at the positive under the new. And here is his primary argument here in this section. It's very simple. The old covenant sacrifices could not provide eternal perfection. The old covenant sacrifices could not provide eternal perfection. He begins in verse one, for the law. The law here, obviously, it's probably capitalized in your Bible. He's talking about the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, the one that gave the regulations for how the people were to live, but specifically here in context, they gave the regulations for the sacrificial system. That's the law we're looking at. And before we get into the specific inadequacies of that law, he reminds us what he's already told us about why the law inherently was inadequate. Verse one again, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. This is not the first time that Hebrews is referred to the law as a shadow. We saw it earlier back in verse, or chapter eight, verses four to five. He says, now if he were on earth, that is Jesus operating as a high priest, 
he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve, here it is, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. The, the law and those who served according to the law, he says, were simply a shadow. The point, of course, is obvious. There's a vast difference between a shadow and the substance that cast the shadow. Which is greater? The substance, of course. The object that cast the shadow is greater than the shadow. But the shadow points to the subject, substance. It points to the, the one casting the shadow. That's the whole idea. Specifically here, Christ and his sacrifice and the new covenant is referred to as the very form of things. The word form is the word for image. The true image that's casting the shadow is Jesus Christ, as we'll find out. But the reason that the law could not do what Christ could do is because it was always intended to be only the shadow. It was there so that the people might stand in the shadow of the coming Messiah and have a constant awareness of two things. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant should have given the people a constant awareness of their need for forgiveness on the one hand and that God's ultimate solution for their sin was still needed. The ultimate solution was on the way. It had not yet come. Understand it was never God's intention that his people be content with the shadow as if the shadow was somehow the final substance, the final plan in God's plan of redemption. It was always to point ahead to one that was coming. As Paul would go on to say of the law in general, in Galatians chapter three, the law itself functioned like a tutor to lead us to Christ, a teacher. Galatians three, verses 23 and 24 says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, our teacher to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law was also always to be a tutor, always to be a teacher, pointing us to our need, our desperate situation, and to look for the Messiah that was to come as the Redeemer. Because of that fact, because the law was always to be a shadow, now it makes sense as to why the law could not secure the per perfection that we ultimately needed. And now he goes on to say that clearly. He says, because it was a shadow, it says the law, verse, middle of verse one, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Notice the strong language, can never, never, it's impossible for this to happen. Notice when he says that these sacrifices are continual year by year. What's he talking about? Obviously, there were sacrifices that happened day by day, every day, but what was the sacrifice that happened year by year? It's the Day of Atonement. It's the Day of Atonement, which has been in focus throughout this section. Specifically, he's, he's putting the sacrifice of Christ up against that sacred, special, solemn ceremony on the Day of Atonement, the one day a year when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and offer blood for the, for the sins of the people as a whole. 
He's, he's putting a contrast between those two great realities, and that's why he says year by year instead of day by day. The Day of Atonement, of course, was an annual ceremony. It was a sacred ceremony, and it, it was to highlight the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the people. It also highlighted the grace of God in offering a way for sins to be covered, but Ultimately, as we'll see, it left the people with a sense of distance, a sense of the fact that God is holy and he's separate from us and we're not allowed to go into his presence. But notice that the author doesn't simply say that these sacrifices can never offer forgiveness of our sins. That's not what he says. Often when we talk about the gospel and what the gospel produces for us, we talk about being forgiven of our sins. And that's true. We are forgiven of our sins, but it's much, much more than that. Look back at what he says. These sacrifices, the law, can never make perfect those who draw near. You see that? It doesn't just say he can't make them forgiven. He says the law could not make them perfect. What does that indicate? It explains that our problem with sin is far bigger than we first thought. What you need as a sinner, what I need as a sinner, is not just forgiveness. We don't just need God to wipe our slate clean from our past sins. Instead, what is needed to enter into the presence of God and to live with God forever is actual perfection, moral, holy perfection. That's what you and I have to have in order to be made right with God. And the law could not do that. It couldn't make the people actually perfect, morally spotless and righteous. The author's point here for us is that if you're seeking to be made right with God through the law or through any other man-made works-based system, you are hopeless can't do it. It won't work. It cannot make you perfect. Now, I've said this before, but I do want to be clear. By calling the law inadequate, the author is not saying that somehow God messed up the first time and he had to do something to fix his error, as if he created the law hoping it would provide righteousness, and it didn't, so he had to send Christ. No, the law did exactly what God intended the law to do. The law operated perfectly. The reason it was inadequate to provide perfection is because God made it that way on purpose. God made the law, as we read earlier, as a tutor to show us our need for perfection and forgiveness and then provided that in the person of Christ. But still, his point is he's looking at Jewish people who are, for some reason, uh, looking back over the fence and thinking, ah, things may have been better over there. And he says, no, they weren't. <laughs> no, they weren't. Because the law can never do for you what is actually needed. It couldn't make you perfect. And now he's going to prove it. He's going to prove it with two specific proofs in verses two to four. And these are pretty obvious, but they're essential. Here's the first proof, proof number one. Why was it inadequate? Well, the offering was continual. The offering was continual. This makes perfect sense when you think about it. 
He says in verse one, the law could never make you perfect. And verse two, he says, and here's why, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, that's easy, it's simple. It's one of those truths that you wonder, how do we not see this before? This is staring us right in the face. Obviously, if the Old Testament sacrifices on the Day of Atonement were enough to make you perfect, how many of them would you need? Just one. So the very fact that God commanded that that would be a sacrifice offered year after year after year ought to have been enough to show that it's not truly adequate, it's not even intended or designed to truly deal with the problem of sin at the root level, to where sin and the condemnation for sin could truly be atoned for. And the worshipers not only had this obvious external witness, the fact that this was on the annual calendar, but he goes on to say it also produced an internal witness. You know from something inside of you that this is just not adequate. What is that? Well, look back at verse two. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? And here's why they would have ceased to be offered. Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. They would have no longer had consciousness of sins. What's the obvious implication? They did have consciousness of sins. They had a a, a continual sense of the fact that it didn't do it. That sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, it did not truly bring me to God. Sins not truly dealt with at the root level. They had a continual cloud of heaviness They didn't have a clean conscience in the truest sense of the word. And as the author's already told us back in chapter nine, you may remember that we need a salvation that provides a genuinely clean conscience. Hebrews 9, 8 and 9, the Holy Spirit signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. The law could not provide the clean conscience that we so desperately desire and need. This provides for us a really poignant picture of what it must have been like to live under the old covenant The Jewish people, as part of their annual calendar, were commanded to celebrate the Day of Atonement. Now, they would have told you they were going to attend those ceremonies for the purpose of receiving atonement for their sins. And they wouldn't have been lying. The scriptures are clear that at least in some way there was a covering for sins that God um, provided through that sacrifice. But what our author wants us to do is to look at the bigger picture. And to say, yes, on the day of atonement, there may have been a a temporary covering of sin, but why did you keep coming back year after year? It was because the true problem of sin remained unresolved. He wants them to look at this from a different angle and understand that they need a sacrifice and we need a sacrifice that provides true eternal atonement. You know, there's no human illustration that can perfectly illustrate this. Every illustration has its weaknesses, but let me see if I can help us by thinking of it this way. 
Sin is often in the scriptures referred to as a debt. It's given that illustration of a debt that we owe. We even sang of it this morning. So let's say, for example, for a moment that you're in need of a life-saving medical procedure that costs more than our national debt. It's really expensive and getting more expensive by the day. (laughs) And you have to have this procedure. There's no option for you to make it without this life-saving procedure, except you have a problem. Because not only do you not have the trillions of dollars that you need to pay for the procedure, but you've actually already incurred debts on other procedures that also exceed the national debt. So you're not coming to the table with a clean slate financially, you're coming uh, far underwater in debt. So not only do you not have the money that you need to pay for the procedure, you first have to pay an insurmountable debt. At first you're discouraged, but then you say, I can't simply do nothing, I have to try. And so you begin to save your pennies and you begin to, to make payments towards that debt, but you're only able to afford an interest only loan. So every month, You save and save and save and you make a payment and you momentarily feel so good. I did it. I made a payment and then you remember, but I only paid the interest. The principal debt that I owe has not changed. It's still the same. I'm running in quicksand. That's what the author is saying the sacrificial system was like. It's as if they came and they made a payment. They made the offering. Hooray! Only to walk away and realize my debt is unchanged. Sin has not really been fully paid for. If the price of entering heaven is a perfectly righteous life and yet all I have is a mounting debt of sin, I'll never make it. I'll never make it. Because even if somehow I could pay the debt and wipe my slate clean, I've already ruined the chance at a perfect life. And so it is, the people would have come year after year with great rejoicing and fanfare when the high priest came out of the Holy of Holies, God accepted our sacrifice only to come back same time, same place next year. So what actually happened in that sacrifice was not a sense of a a lifting and a clean conscience, but a reminder of sin. And that's what the author says now. He says, verse three, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. You show up for the sacrifice, you show up for the, the holiday, the annual set aside celebration the ceremony only to leave longing for an ultimate solution. This was part of the shadow. It was part of the function of the shadow, that annual sacrifice to keep the people hungry with eyes looking forward to something more. That great redeemer, the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3, the one that would truly deal with sin, that would come from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent, the one that began to be revealed progressively over time to be the Messiah, the son of David, longing for that one to come. 
But the point here is that it couldn't deal with sin because it was continual and it left the people with a constant sense of a heavy, guilty conscience. But there's another crucial proof here that also highlights the inadequacy of the sacrificial system that's also very obvious and yet profound. And it's proof number two, the sacrifice was inadequate. It's not only continual, but the sacrifice itself, that is the content of the sacrifice was inherently inadequate. Look back at verse four. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Notice again the strong language. It is impossible. Just like it can never make the worshiper perfect, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It's impossible. But why? Why is it impossible for the sacrificial blood of a bull or of a goat or of a lamb to take away the sins of a human being? Well, the answer comes to us all the way back in the beginning because of how God made us. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 to 28, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In the creation account, we see clearly that God makes an intentional distinction between mankind and all the rest of the created beings, animals on the earth. When God comes to the creation of mankind, he pauses, he breaks the rhythm of Genesis chapter one, and he makes a profound statement that there will be something unique about mankind, man and woman. They, and they only, out of all that God has made, will bear the image of God. And we can see at least some of what is meant by this distinction just by observing the vast differences between mankind and animals. While all things are made for the glory of God, only mankind is given the cognitive ability and capacity to offer active praise and worship to God. We, we alone of the created beings on earth can have a real relationship with God and actually worship God actively. In addition to that, mankind's given the ability to reason at a level that far surpasses that of even the most intelligent animals. He's put a conscience within us to distinguish right from wrong. He's given us an eternal soul so that we're not temporal beings, but we'll go on forever. And because we are image bearers of God and given this great distinction, we are therefore also accountable to God. It comes with accountability. Animals are irrational beings and therefore incapable of understanding the true ramifications of their actions. Mankind is made to be rational. He understands what he's doing and the implications, at least some of them, of what he's doing, and therefore he is accountable to God, whereas animals are not. Therefore, 
a non-image bearing being can never substitute for an image bearer. Can't happen. The animals sacrificed on the Day of Atonement had absolutely no choice. They had no knowledge of what they were doing. They did not volitionally come to be sacrificed. The life of an animal is therefore fundamentally different than the life of a human. And so it is, the author says correctly, it's impossible. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is, by the way, just a side note, but this is yet another clear argument from Scripture that any evolutionary theory that claims that mankind evolved from animals is false. We are fundamentally different, not because we've evolved to be that way over time. We are fundamentally different because we were made to be so from the beginning as image bearers of God. Now, with all of that in mind, I want us to think for a moment of what life would have been like under the old covenant. I want us to process what we've just learned. The Day of Atonement was commanded by God as an annual celebration, a national holiday, if you will. Like our holidays, it came with its own traditions and ceremonies. There, was, there were fastings that were commanded according to that holiday. Of course, the ritual of the high priest was was designated by God down to the specific details of how he was to carry out his task. Only this national holiday ultimately served the purpose of reminding the the people that they were separated from God because of their sin and still in need of a redeemer. They left that solemn ceremony with an accusing conscience reminding them that the problem of sin still remained completely unresolved. Now, I want you to think about the difference between that and the annual celebrations that we have on the Christian calendar. What are the two major holidays on the Christian calendar? Obviously, these are not commanded in Scripture as the Old Testament ones were, but we have Easter, of course, Resurrection Sunday, and Christmas that we just celebrated. And what is the subject of our celebration on each of those days? Is it not the fact that Messiah has come and Messiah has provided both sacrifice and the righteousness that's needed so that we get to come away from our celebrations full of joy, filled with with gratitude because he's come. God has done it. We've been made new. We have the righteousness in Christ we so desperately needed. Jesus Christ became a real human being. That is, he became an image bearer of God. God, from eternally past, taking on humanity, and in his humanity, now we have an image bearer. In addition to that, he lived a perfect, sinless life. So he had the righteousness. The perfect life was actually secured by his life. Then he comes and offers himself as a willing sacrifice. Remember when Jesus tells Pilate, you would have no authority over me if it wasn't for the will of my Father. Yes, Jesus was murdered. He was put through a sham of a trial. He was falsely treated. But understand, Jesus went to the cross because it was the predetermined plan of God and he went there willingly as a voluntary sacrifice for sin. Then on the cross, he took the penalty for sin, the wrath of God on himself. 
And then after having died a real death in which he was then buried, he rose from the grave, full of real life, and then offers to us through repentance and faith in him eternal redemption, not just forgiveness. No, he offers to us his righteousness. He says, you need perfect righteousness as the law has told you all throughout history, and I've provided it, and I offer my righteousness to you by grace through faith. And so it is that Paul would write those famous words in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that, not just that we'd be forgiven of sin, but so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the good news of the gospel. This is how you and I get to live, Christian with this good news of the gospel under the new covenant. Don't miss the significance of what the author of Hebrews implies about our current situation under the new covenant. Remember, he's reminding these Christians of, uh, that they shouldn't be looking over the fence thinking that it's better on the other side, but realizing it's much better on this side of the fence. And the crucial implication here is that if under the old covenant, you had to live with a constant guilty conscience that could never truly be cleansed, then what does that say positively about life under the new covenant? That God has provided in Christ the gift of a truly clear conscience. What a gift. To get to live life with a truly clear conscience. It means that we don't have to walk around anymore with a foreboding sense of our debt of sin. That debt can be paid and the guilt of our conscience can be lifted forever. What a gift. Though under the old covenant, those interest payments, if you were, were paid, but the principle was never touched. In Christ, God says the principle is wiped clean. In fact, it's placed on my son and his perfect righteousness I've now placed on you. And it's done, never to be revisited, never to be undone for those in Christ. The day of atonement screamed to the worshipers, unworthy, unworthy. You can't come near, stay back in Christ. The grace of the gospel says, my child, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a gift, the debt paid. Now next week we'll look at the author's argument as to why Christ is undeniably that perfect sacrifice but what I want to bring our attention to this morning as we draw things to a close is that the Christian life is to be characterized by the gift of a clean conscience. What Christ has purchased for us in salvation is new life in which we no longer live under the weight of the condemnation brought on by our sin. 
The apostle Paul describes it this way in Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As believers, we are to live lives that are free from the burden of the condemnation of the debt of sin. So why do so many Christians still live as if the debt remains? Far too many Christians live joyless lives in which they act as if God's an angry ogre in the clouds, always ready to crush them for the slightest misstep. And what that produces is a joyless pursuit of sanctification in which we seek to obey God in order to appease him rather than from a heart of joy and true love for the Savior. Now, we need to understand this clean conscience does not mean that we're now oblivious to our sin, as if we have no idea that we sinned against God or that we still sin against God. No, we understand our sin. As believers, we're called to fight our sin, to kill our sin, to pursue sanctification. It's not saying that we become oblivious to the fact that we've sinned. It's instead an understanding that we now know that the debt's been paid our sin will never come back to be judged because it's been judged in Christ. So we don't live under the weight of that condemnation. We've been freed from the penalty of sin and the abiding power of sin. No longer do we live under the shadow of the debt of sin. So when we live that way, what that produces is the joy of knowing and loving and pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. It produces joy in the Christian life, a joy that says, you know what? I'd give away all my possessions. I'd give away my very life. Take it because I have Christ and he's more valuable than all of it. Let me ask you, does that describe your life? Do you live your life as a Christian with joy in Christ because of what he's done for you? Or are you still living under the weight of an accusing conscience overshadowed by the debt of your sin? If the answer is yes to that, if you're still living under the weight of an accusing conscience, then the reason for that is one of three things. There are three reasons that you may be living under the weight of a heavy conscience this morning. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, you may have come to true faith in Christ, but you have an unbiblical understanding of biblical sanctification. So that is, you may be a true believer. You may have truly repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, but you've misunderstood what the Bible teaches about how to pursue and think about sanctification. You are pursuing obedience to Christ because you still feel this need to earn something from him, to earn your way with God. You know you're forgiven, but you still struggle with sin and that struggle confuses you and it puts you under a cloud of joyless Christianity. If that's you, if you're living that way, one, I would love to talk with you 
please come speak with me after the service. I'd love to talk with you about biblical sanctification and how to think rightly about the pursuit of obedience. But also I wanna recommend a book to you quickly, Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. It's a very helpful book if you're struggling to pursue sanctification in the way that the Bible describes that produces life and joy and peace in Christ. Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. Number two, the second option, if you're living currently under a cloud of a guilty conscience, you may have come to true faith in Christ, but you're living in a pattern of unrepentant sin. If you're truly in Christ, then your debt has been paid and, and, and our Savior is good and kind and he won't ultimately let you stay in that pattern of sin. He's gonna treat you like a loving father to a son or a daughter. And as we'll learn later in Hebrews, he's gonna bring discipline in your life to bring you to a point of repentance. And so if you're living under the weight of a heavy conscience and your conscience is screaming at you this morning, you ought to ask yourself, am I living in a known pattern of sin that I'm unwilling to repent of? And if you're in Christ, the father will discipline you to bring you back to himself And that discipline will include, in the midst of other things, certainly a screaming conscience that won't let you sleep at night until you turn to him for forgiveness. But there's a third option. If you're living under the weight of a cloud of a guilty conscience, it may be that you've never come to know Christ at all and you're still under condemnation for your sin. And if this is true, understand that the Bible says that's that's how all of us begin in this life. All of us are sinners and we deserve God's rightful condemnation for our sin. As we've already discussed, that sin separates us from God. And so that picture on the day of atonement in which the people are standing far off because holy God is over there and unrighteous humans are over here, that's, that's right, that's correct. And if you're not in Christ, that is your current standing with God. He is holy, you are not. And that gulf between you cannot be crossed by your efforts. Instead, what you need is the solution that God himself has provided that we've read about every which way we could read about this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he alone has provided not only the forgiveness that you need by taking God's wrath on the cross, but the perfect life you need by living the perfect life himself. And he offers that to you today if you would turn humbly in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. But that's the only path to forgiveness. It's the only path to eternal life. And it's the only way to the right kind of joyful living that God has intended for his people through the lifting of our sin. As we draw our time to a close, let me just leave you with three points of application to meditate on in light of what we've discussed today. Number one, let me encourage you to dwell on the gift of the new covenant. I want you to think about the new covenant. Spend some time thinking about the privilege you and I have of living on this side of the cross. Think about all the knowledge that we're privy to, that Old Testament saints long to look into. They long to know what will the Messiah be like. I mean, think about the greats of history, Moses, Abraham, Daniel, We are privy to knowledge they did not have because we live on this side of the cross. Think about the gift of that. Think even about our holidays. 
that we get to celebrate, celebrating that Christ has come and he has provided for our sins. And think about the gift of communion. I want you to think about communion for a moment. God had given the people of Israel an annual ceremony that was a reminder of their sin and their need for forgiveness. He's given to us in the church a regular reminder through communion of our sin, but the fact that it's been completely paid for. When Jesus introduced the practice of communion, what did he say to his disciples? As often as you do this, do what? Do it in remembrance of what? Of me. Not of your sin, but of me. Because I have come and provided the restitution that you needed. So when we practice communion, it's sober and it is a reminder of sin. And we, every time, talk about the fact that even now we need to to survey our lives. But communion is not just about the guilt of sin. It's about the fact that the payment for sin has been made. That's how we get to live on this side of the cross. Spend some time thinking on that this week. Secondly, give thanks for a clear conscience. What a joy it is to be able to lay your head on the pillow at night as a believer and know it's done. My sins are, they're forgiven, washed away. It's done. A clean conscience is a true gift. We can take it for granted. If you've been in Christ for decades, for a number of years, we get used to living with a clear conscience. And we forget to give thanks for the fact that we no longer live under the condemnation of our sin. That's incredible. May we live like it's incredible. Amen? And number three, live with a clear conscience. Live with a clear conscience. That may seem like a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. One is a clear conscience in regards to our justification. The debt is paid. Righteousness in my account But now as a son or daughter of the king, I am to live in a way that is in keeping with being a son or daughter of the king. And so live with a clear conscience. That is day to day, pursuing obedience out of love for the Savior, not to earn something from him, but to honor him and to love him. This is what he's purchased for us. May it be true of our individual lives. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture that in you not only is the the debt paid, which is a debt we can never pay, but righteousness is secured and added to the account of all who come by grace through faith to Christ. We pray that these truths would just sit on us today, this week, every day, help us to live in light of them And even now as we sing, help us to sing with a clearer understanding and with greater joy over the significance of what you've done for us in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.